0: What would Jesus say about the church today? Of course, that's a very broad question. Maybe more particular, what would Jesus say about our church? What would Jesus say about the Sovereign Grace Chapel church family? It's an interesting question to pose. Because sometimes we think about church uh, as merely a matter of preference. You know, some people like vanilla ice cream. Some people like spouse like a house ice cream. Chocolate chip cookie dough. Coffee chocolate chip. There's all kinds of different flavors of ice cream out there. And you know, some like one flavor, others like another, different strokes for different folks. But the reality is, is that uh, there actually was one occasion in the scripture where Jesus showed up at church. And he gave a report card to different churches. In fact, seven of them. Seven different churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where Jesus shows up. And he gives a report card and says, okay, you're doing okay here, but you stink over here. You're doing well over here, but not so good over here. Fix this, or I will pull your lampstand. I will abandon you. Those are some pretty sobering, serious words. And so that could be one way in which we could evaluate and measure a church and its health and its purity. Purity. Another way as well would be by looking at this prayer that Jesus prays because he's praying for his church. He's praying for his people. These are his desires for his people. Now, up until this point, as we walked our way through John chapter 17, most of the application has been more individual, more individual-based on, on person to person, but now I want us to think as we take one last look at John chapter 17 to think corporately as we look at Jesus' prayer and the petitions that he gives to the Father, what are his desires for the church in general and the church specifically here at Sovereign Grace Chapel and so that we would align ourselves with Jesus' petitions We don't want to go against Jesus' prayers, do we? So, we're going to look at seven characteristics of a healthy church, of a church that Jesus desires that we would look like. That's a lot of points. Normally, you only get three. First of all, it's a church with protection. A church with protection. Verse 12, Jesus said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Notice Jesus keeping the disciples, these disciples which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then also drop your eyes down to verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So notice Jesus describes his own activity as guarding them, as keeping them, and then he prays also for the Father to keep them. And specifically in verse 15, he says, I do not not pray, do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. And and when we looked at this some weeks ago, we were reminded of the reality that there is a very real adversary to Christ's people, namely the devil, the evil one. And by the way, he wants to undo all these things that Jesus prays for here. But Jesus prays against it. He prays that the Father would protect them from the evil one. This suggests to me that the church will always be at war until Jesus returns. The church will always be at war. A war that does not consist of guns and ammo and bombs. But a war that consists of ideas, truth, persuasion. A war that has to do with unmasking lies of the devil that are in this world and seek to infiltrate the church. In fact, the older writers used to speak of the church that still exists here on the earth as the church militant. The church militant. The church that is at war, the church That is enlisted in Christ's army to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. A church that indeed, as Jesus prayed, is protected from the evil one so that the evil one cannot overcome the church. But nonetheless, there is the reality that the church will be molested and assaulted and sought to be infiltrated and joined by the evil one. And so the church must be engaged in this battle, in this battle of ideas. It's a war of ideologies that are often encroaching upon the church. And the church has to be discerning and to think through the lies of the world and to be able to combat those lies. And so, again, this is one of the reasons why we seek to equip you with the truth of God's word. That Even as Jesus prays later on, he prays that they would be sanctified in the truth. So that as you have the reality, the truth of God's word, you can discern the lies of this world. And you can fight back against these lies. So the first characteristics of the, of the church is is a church with protection as it engages in the war and by the way this protection liberates us to fight in the war you know if you are engaged in battle and you know you have other guys covering you or you have protective gear on you have a, a little bit more courage a little bit more wherewithal to storm the hill. But if you're not confident that you're protected, then you might not engage in the battle. But secondly, it's not only a church with protection, it's a church with sanctification. Uh, Shot through this prayer over and over is that word sanctified, over and over. We see it most particularly in verse 17 with this petition that Jesus prays Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify means to set apart, to be devoted unto the Lord. To be different from the rest of the world and its unbelieving ideologies. To be living a godly, sanctified, pure life in this world. church is supposed to be different. God's people are supposed to be radically different in the things that we believe, in the way that we live. But tragically, so often the beliefs and practices of the world around us infiltrate the church. Some of you may be familiar with the survey that has been published the past couple of years, and there was a recent one that was just released, I believe, yesterday or the day before. It's it's a survey put together by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway. It's called the State of Theology. Much like you know, the president addresses the State of the Union. He's supposed to be addressing Congress, saying this is how things are in America. Well, there's the State of Theology, analyzing the the, the beliefs of this country that we live in. But but also part of that survey identifies those who profess to be evangelicals within that survey. And so the survey was conducted. Some 3,000 people responded, or at least I think 3,000 evangelicals were part of the response. And when surveyed, under the Likert scale that evaluating the statement gender identity is a matter of choice you could either strongly disagree or strongly agree 37% of professing evangelicals agree that gender identity is a matter of choice in other words you choose whether you're male or female not good prospect The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. Agree or disagree? Well, 28% of professing evangelicals agree that homosexual that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. No bueno. Not good. These are evidences that the church, ever increasingly, at least in this country, is more and more adopting the ideologies of the world. Is not sanctified in the truth. And then when it comes even to other things like a survey, this was a different survey, on if... A man or woman has sexual relations before marriage, do you think that it is always wrong, almost always wrong, wrong only sometimes or not wrong at all? Well, amongst conservative Protestants, and this was taken from those conservative Protestant denominations, 38% said that premarital sex is always wrong. But That leaves 60% who didn't. So you can see ever increasingly that the church is becoming just like the world. In fact, even tragically, another statistic in the same chapter had adultery rates amongst conservative Protestants at neck and neck with others. From other religions, atheists, roughly 20% of men, 15% of women. And so you can see Jesus' prayer for his bride, his church, is that she would be sanctified. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart from the world. We are to be living distinct lives that are different than the rest of the world. That doesn't, of course, that doesn't mean that Christians don't fail and sin. But when, when you fail, you confess it to Jesus and you repent. And you get on that road to righteousness and honoring the Lord with your life. no wonder that when Jesus speaks to one of the churches in Revelation 2.20, he indicts her when he says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they may commit acts of sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And so, Jesus condemns the church when she is not living a sanctified life and threatens, even in that context in Revelation 2, to take the lampstand away, to take the witness to the world away so that that which may even at one point have been considered a church is not even a church anymore. And so this is a clarion call as we see Jesus' prayer here for his people, for us here as this local manifestation of Christ's church to be living different lives, lives that are governed by God's word, lives that are consistent and yielding to the lordship of Christ. To be putting off sin and putting off righteousness This is one of the reasons why Jesus gives a process by which to restore someone who says Jesus is Lord with their lips, but they're living radically different in their life. He lays it out in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won him over. You're to win him back, win her back. But second step, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. But if they're still refusing, if they're still obstinate, he says, if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if they're still obstinate, if they still refuse to listen even to the collective local body of believers Then, he says, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, consider them outside God's people. Because they may say Jesus is Lord, but with their life, they're living as if something else was Lord. They're not living sanctified, set apart. So, the first characteristic... Is a church with protection. Secondly, a church with sanctification. Thirdly, a church with truth conviction. Verse 17, same verse. Sanctify them by what? What's the means? By the truth. And just in case you're not clear what that truth is, if, it, if you think, well, truth is just what I feel it to believe. It's my truth. No. Jesus is very clear. The standard of truth is what? The Word. Your Word is truth. Truth with a capital T. It is the standard by which we know all that we know about God, all that we know about man, all that we know about sin and problems and sufferings in this world. God's revelation to us is truth. And so, God's people are to be a people, as has been said throughout church history, we are a people of the book. We are a people of the book, namely, the Bible. Historically, even, I mentioned the term evangelical in in regards to the survey, historically, The term evangelical since the time of the Protestant Reformation basically meant you were a a Jesus Christian and a Bible Christian. You believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. And you're a Bible Christian. You believe that the Bible is the only infallible authority given to us. Pretty simple definition. Unfortunately, The term as it's used today smuggles in all kinds of stuff. Well, back to the state of theology. That survey conducted by Ligonier and Lifeway Research. It's kind of depressing, but I think it's important for us to think about so that we don't go this route. When given the statement... Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Strongly disagree, strongly agree. 38% of evangelicals agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. You believe that, you've just gutted the Bible of all authorities. no wonder that you can, you can take the Bible like people do at, you know, the old country buffet. I'll have this. No, I don't want this. I'll take this over here. No, not this. No. You're not allowed to. It's truth. Or how about this one? When it comes to some of the main basic tenets of Scripture, namely what the Bible believes about man, this statement, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% of evangelicals agree with that statement. Other doctrines, even Jesus. How about this one? Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% 43% of evangelicals agree with that statement. Again, what is that telling us? At least the term that has been historically used as evangelical, people who claim they're evangelical are not evangelical. But nonetheless, it again is highlighting the reality that Christ's prayer for his church is that we would be a people sanctified in the truth, we would have truth convictions. That we would soak our beliefs deep into the soils of Scripture. That we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. We would not be governed by the latest ideas, the fads that come and go. But that we would be a people that tie ourselves to the ancient book, those old paths. And this is clear as you read the rest of the New Testament, the primacy the importance of the Word of God in the life of the people of God is utterly foundational. When Paul is, ta- is writing to a church leader, Timothy, in regards to how the church is to be conducted, this is what he tells Timothy. <clears throat> Until I come, Timothy, <clears throat> give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's what he tells Timothy. He tells him, you know, I'm delayed, but until I come, this is what you're to do, Timothy. When you gather, read the Bible, exhort from the Bible, teach from the Bible. It's really not that complicated. In fact, ironically, there's no instruction on what style of music you're supposed to have. But it does say when you gather, the voice of God must be heard amongst the people of God. And as the messenger of God, that messenger is to read the Bible, to exhort from the Bible, and to teach from the Bible. That's to be the authority. Similarly, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 17, a familiar verse, Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped thoroughly, uh, may, be, may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then sometimes we, because there's a chapter division, we, we we divorce it from what comes next. But what comes next is an admonition to Timothy. In verse 1 of chapter 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus... <clears throat> Who is judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. I mean, if you stop there, wow. Like, whatever he's going to say next, it is dead serious, right? It is blood earnest. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom. Verse 2, the imperative it's an aorist imperative. It commands the sense of urgency. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Again, the, the exhortation to Timothy as one of the leaders in Christ's church is to declare the message of God from Scripture. This profitable scripture. This scripture that is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. This is to be the voice of God amongst the people of God. Martin Luther, the German reformer, he called the church the moot house. It's German for the mouth house. The point was that this is where God speaks. He speaks to us from his word. And so this is why Jesus prays for his people. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your people need to be a people of the book, soaking their soils deeply in the scriptures, drawing their convictions, their beliefs from the scriptures as the authority And I know that's, you're not here because of my charming personality. (laughs) Despite the reality we had a fantastic barbecue yesterday, you're not here for the food. But you're here for the food of God's word. But we need to keep this the main thing. This is why Jesus, when, when he's, again, writing to the churches, commendations, condemnations, he speaks to the church in Ephesus. He, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false. In other words, he commends the church in Ephesus for being a discerning church, to being a church... That discerned the ideas and beliefs of people who claimed to be bringing the message of the apostles. And they fundamentally rejected them. They said, out of here, we will not hear it. Now, in our church culture today, oh, that's so unloving. Right? That's, That's what you hear, right? But Jesus says, well done, guys. You spit their ideas out. And then he continues to commend this church. In verse 6, he says, yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You hate what these guys do over here. The, the The commendation of the church in Ephesus, they were a discerning church. They were a church that in many ways was sanctified by the truth. He writes later on to one of the other churches condemning them. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idol. And to commit acts of sexual immorality. So you have some who in the same way Hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he condemns another church for not being discerning, for just letting this teaching come in the church, for not having and holding to the standard of God's truth as the instrument to discern other ideas and beliefs. So, Sovereign Grace Chapel family, avail yourselves the opportunities here to learn God's truth, to grow in God's truth, to be sanctified in God's truth. And if there's any drifting apart from God's truth, summon us back to God's truth. Hold us to the standard of God's truth. So... First three characteristics, a church with protection, a church with sanctification, a church with true convictions. Fourthly, a church with a mission. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And then also notice verse 1. As Jesus begins this prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Why do I define this this characteristic? Why do I label this characteristic as a church with a mission? A church with a mission, I, I should say a church with the mission. The first mission, namely, to glorify God. I mean, this is Jesus' prayer over and over, sprinkled throughout this prayer. He is aligning himself for the glory and exaltation of Almighty God. But also included in part of that mission is the edification that we see, sanctification by the truth, and the evangelism. Notice in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also... Send them into the world. A church with a mission. A church with a mission field. A church that has been sent by Jesus to reach the world. Because after all, is that not what? The reason why Jesus came, right? Luke chapter 19 verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15, we read it this morning. Here's a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief, or I'm foremost. Christ came to save, to rescue. And he sends his people with a rescue mission to deliver sinners from darkness to light. From the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. And again, as we have alluded to in the series, this is all these these characteristics, they really do go together. A, A church that is concerned about sanctification and truth with no heart for this lost and dying world often becomes a church that is very ingrown and self-righteous and us four, shut the door, no more kind of mentality. I'm a poet and I didn't know it. But the church must have the same kind of heart that Jesus has for lost people. I mean, is that not what you once were? Lost? And Christ, in the wonder of his grace, sent a messenger of the gospel your way, and you heard the truth, and by grace you believed, and the blinders were taken off, and he planted you amongst his people. You were once an outsider. You were once a stranger of God's grace and he in his wondrous mercy reached out to you and brought you into the fold. And you were as blind and as stupid as anybody else was. And Christ rescued you. And if he did that for you, do you not care about The lost and perishing world? Do you not have a heart for those who, were they to die right now outside of Christ, they would be under the hand of God's judgment forever and ever? This is our mission. And, of course, there may be, to be sure, there are some in this room who are, you're part of our mission. We want you to come to Jesus. We want you to see the weight of your sin before a holy God, that you have offended Him. And that the sentence of death is over you. God's judgment hangs over your head. And God is so so kind that He sent his only son, to die upon that Roman cross and to rise from the dead. And that he gives this offer of forgiveness of sin, this offer of salvation to you even here this morning. But you must repent and believe. You must repent. That means to turn from your rebellions and turn back towards the Lord Jesus to take him as your king. And also to trust in Him as your priest, as the one who died on your behalf. So, friend, if if you've not yet responded to that message, respond this morning. You can do it now, you can do it from your seat. Turn to Christ. You don't know when you're going to die. We do not want you to die and wake up in hell. There is a Savior who saves people from hell. Turn to him. And also for those who have responded to that message, to you who are part of the Sovereign Grace Chapel family, we must never grow cold to the reality that we are here with a mission It is indeed the one thing you cannot do in heaven. You cannot speak the gospel to a perishing soul in heaven. But you can here while there's still time. So, friend, align yourself with this great mission. Take advantage of the opportunities that you have with your friends, your neighbors. Be a part of, uh, of attempts that we try to do to reach out to the community around us, whether it's through the trunk or treat or community picnic or, or whatever. Throw your shoulder behind those efforts to reach the world around us. It's not only a church. With protection, a church with sanctification, a church with truth conviction, a church with a mission. Fifthly, a church with unification, a unified church. Verse twenty: Jesus prays, "I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also uh, who also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us." so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that his church would be a united church, that there would be unification amongst God's people. Now, yes, there is true in a very real sense. This is a spiritual unity, and this is a reality right now. We all have the same spirit. You know, Ephesians 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and he keeps going on. One this, one that, one that. You are united. It's a reality. But in that same context, that same apostle says, preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is a natural unity that exists amongst God's people. But it is a unity that can be breached through sin. It can be breached through unforgiveness. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debtors to us. We need to be a people that are united. A people that are united in a kind of unity that is rooted and based in what theological reality? The Trinity. I and them and... And you and me, Jesus prays. I mean, this is, this is, these are transcendent realities, this unity that is rooted within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're to have that kind of unity. And one of the beautiful things about that is because of the distinctness of the persons, it's not uniformity. It's not Islam. It's not Allah. There is a diversity of persons, but there is a oneness of essence. And so it is in the body of Christ. There's diversity, is there not? There's Browns fans. And there's Steelers fans. There's some who have lots of formal education. There's some who have almost no formal education. Some people who are wealthy. Some people not so much. And that's one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ. There's all kinds of diversity, but there's a unity. There's a unity. Not uniformity. Uniformity, that's Soviet. There's a unity in the midst of diversity. And again, so again, friends, this is what Jesus prays for. And, and this is so vital. With all these other uh, these other thing, these other uh, characteristics of a healthy church, here, you know, the church that has deep biblical convictions is going to be a united church. A church that is increasingly sanctified, that wants to live a godly life before the Lord, is going to be quick to confess their sin and resolve conflicts. So, friend, do you have any conscious controversy? With another believer within this body. Resolve it. Be reconciled. Jesus says if you're there offering your gift at the altar and there realize that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there. Go. Be reconciled to your brother, then come back. It's pretty obvious, right? There's an urgency to dealing with that. Or how about in the context of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil an opportunity. The devil, the evil one that Jesus prays protection against, guess what? He wants a divided church. He wants a church that's bickering and infighting with one another. Why? Because a church that's fighting against one another has forgotten their mission to the world. And he wants to drag as many people to hell with him as he can. Well, it's a church with protection. It's a church with... Sanctification, a church with truth convictions, a church with a mission, a church with unification. We've got to keep this ION theme here. It's a church with jubilation. I told you I'm a poet. It's a church with jubilation. Verse 13, landing right in the middle of this glorious prayer Jesus tells us why he's saying these things out loud, why he's praying out loud. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He's praying for his people to have full, abundant joy. And if... Quite frankly, if we really believe the realities that we find in the Bible, we of all people should be a joyful people. Now, friends, don't misunderstand me. This is not to negate the reality of the sorrows and difficulties that we face in this world as we live in a very dark, sorrow-filled world. The reality of sin, brokenness, broken relationships, divorce, Death. Children who die. Parents who have to bury their own children. These are grievous things in this world. There is much sorrow. Jesus himself was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet... Because we know the realities of who God is. Because we know he is a good God. Who is governing this universe in such a way. That he's working awful, wicked, vile things for his good purposes in this fallen world. And that one day he will incarcerate evil forever and ever in the lake of fire. We can have joy because we know who God is in the midst of this. Because we know Jesus' prayer for our protection is answered. That he prayed that we would not be taken out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one. That we are safe in the arms of Jesus. We are safe in the arms of the Father. The reality of verse 24 where Jesus says, I desire, Father, that they would be with me to see my glory which I had with you. These realities, again, in the midst of the sorrow, we can have joy. It doesn't negate the sorrow, but it gives us sweetness even in the midst of the bitterness of the pain of this world. So friends, we should be a church of people that have joy. That face the hardships of this world and are able to cling to the promises of God and save in the midst of the pain and the sorrow. God is good. If we don't do that, then we're an awful advertisement for the gospel. To be sure, there should be a sobriety and a seriousness with Christianity and even as we gather. But let's not forget about the reality that Should have excitement and joy in the Christian life. What a ride! It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Well, I did promise you seven. I want to keep my promise, it's a good biblical number. We are to be a church with protection, with sanctification, with biblical conviction. A church with a mission, a church with unification, a church with jubilation, and now lastly, a church with affection, a church with love. Isn't it interesting? That's how Jesus begins this discourse in in John chapter 13, and this is how he ends it at the end of John chapter 17. He's praying in verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has known you, has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. And Jesus ends this prayer praying that there would be this Trinitarian love amongst God's people. The same kind of love that has existed for all eternity between Father, Son, and Spirit is to be emanating amongst God's people. And friends, this is quite frankly the glue that holds it all together. James Montgomery Boyce, you pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church for so many years, a couple decades ago, went to be with the Lord but he, he points out the importance of love by imagining these other marks of the church without love. For instance, if you take joy and subtract love from it, what do you have? You have hedonism. You have a kind of exuberance in life and its pleasures without the sanctifying joy that's found in a love relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you take sanctification... And remove love from it, you get self righteousness. That's what the Pharisees were noted for. You get hypocrisy. What happens when you divorce love from truth? It becomes this kind of bitter, hard truth I'm right, you're wrong. And just winds up repelling people from Christ. How about mission without love? (laughs) Mission without love is kind of like imperialism. You need to adopt this. Whether you like it or not. And finally, what is unity without love? The answer is tyranny, right? Soviet history notes many examples of hierarchies that try to bring about unity throughout the empire without love, mere outward conformity, tyranny over people. But love is so essential to all of these other components. And by the way, these are the very points at which, this is where we started The evil one seeks to assault. He seeks to assault the truth so that God's people are denying God's truth, questioning, doubting the veracity of Scripture. Has God really said? He seeks to assault them at the point of sanctification so that we're not living godly, distinct lives. He seeks to assault the mission. He seeks to assault the unity. He seeks to assault the love, to get us focused in and on on ourselves and, and our problems so that we don't care about others. And also on the contrary, when there is love for God, there's going to be joy. When there's love and devotion for Jesus, there's going to be a passion for holiness and sanctification. When there is love for God's word, there is going to be a commitment to the truth. When there is a love for the world, there is going to be a desire to fulfill the mission that Christ gave us. And when there is love for one another, there is going to be a unity amongst God's people. And so it's no wonder that, as we mentioned, we started with Jesus' report card that he gives to those churches and the first church that he speaks to, the church in Ephesus, they got some good grades when it came to truth, discernment, but he does give them an F when it came to love. In Revelation 2, 4, and 5, Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, Repent. And do the deeds which you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And so, my friends, may Christ help us as he has prayed these things for his people. And may we align ourselves with this prayer to be a people that would emanate these characteristics of health amongst us. Let's pray.